Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, yes, yes. Isn't that was such a beautiful intro video? It's so, like, calming in the midst of finals week. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> oh, <laughs> insert evil laughter. I'm done with that part of my life, all right? Get behind me, Satan. Anyways, I'm just joking. Uh, well, my name is Young. Uh, I'm the venue director uh, here at the MSU venue. Uh, glad that you can join us for our final uh, service of the semester here. Um, let me just say to everyone, um, good job. You made it. If you are a student, yes, snaps for you, yes. I think that's the new way to do things. I don't know, it's very, I don't know, I can't follow all these things. Anyways, uh, well, good job to you guys for being, making here, okay, for real. Because this was a, lar a very difficult year. Uh, I was telling our, our volunteers today that after, you know, things began to reopen and we were back on campus and things were away from the whole, like, staying, you know, working from home, school from home thing, the world didn't stop, right? If anything, it felt like the world was just moving at a much faster pace, and yet you guys persisted. You guys were, you know, faithful to your work, to your position as students, uh, as people working. You guys made it. Uh, winter break is upon us. You guys have finals week. Just go over it. You guys can do it. I believe in you guys. Um, and I'm excited for you guys and that you guys can get some rest uh, this winter break. Um, if you are, as Autumn said, if it's your first time here, uh, you are uh, walking into our church as we're going through the series uh, on the Apostles' Creed. Um, and I would actually encourage you to listen and to watch Riv services um, when you're back home and break to follow along with the Apostles' Creed. It will actually take us through winter break. And once you come back to campus, uh, we'll still be in the Apostles' Creed series. But also, if you um, have a home church back at home, uh, we actually would uh, highly encourage you to actually go to that service and then just follow along online maybe sometime throughout the week as well. And so um, for this series, uh, for each sermon, we're actually starting... Um, by reading the Apostles' Creed together. Um, and so, again, Pastor Noel had this whole spiel early, last week about, like, you know, if you grew up doing this and you're like, oh, my gosh, we have to do this at this church too, it's only for this series. Um, so please just kind of bear with us as we do this. Uh, but I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to read uh, either scripture together or a creed together. So what we're going to do here is we're actually going to stand, if you want to stand with, with me. Um, and then I believe the creed is going to be on the screen. Um, actually, let's read it together so we can pop that boy up. Here we go. All right, ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. 
So I was excited to uh, preach today because not only are we wrapping up the, um, the, the what's it called, the, uh, you know, the school year and the semester, uh, but because I get to preach on uh, the part of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And it might seem a little bit cliche for a teacher, a preacher, um, to say that they just get really excited to preach about Jesus because that's what uh, we are called to do in this ministry, uh, uh, in this role as well. But... I'm going to say it because I was really excited because I get to preach about Jesus and only Jesus, really. And uh, so I'm really excited for that. Uh, we are going to be focusing on the section of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, there is so much that we can talk about when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to who Jesus is, and even on what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, the only Son, and our Lord um, as well. And what I want to actually do for us is to take a close look at some of the, a, a sequence of specific passages in the New Testament. Um, and we are actually going to be in the book of Luke. So if you want to open your Bibles, flip, tap, swipe your way, whatever you want to, or you can follow along on the screen. We're just, uh, we're going to start with Luke 3, verses 21 through 22, but we're going to continue actually throughout chapter 4. So if you want to read, or not read with me, but just uh, follow along here. In Luke chapter 3, it says, When all the people were baptized, <clears throat> Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened up, or heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. Pretty wild. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Which is also pretty wild. Um, but before we jump into this passage for today, let me pray for us and pray for our time um, and ask the Lord's help to understand his word for us uh, this morning. So would you pray with me? Most gracious Father, we <clears throat> uh, come before you, Lord, as just people who may be uh, energized. Uh, maybe we had a great weekend. Uh, maybe some of us are filled with anxiety and stress and worry about our future um, uh, because of final exams. Uh, some of us may be excited because uh, we're about to finish our last semester of undergrad and the, you know, the future is open and open field for us. Or maybe some of us feel in, even anxiety about that, Lord, um, because the future is open and we don't know what is in store. Um, but whatever, wherever we may be today, as we come together to worship you, um, to, to serve one another, to serve you. We just pray that our eyes and our gaze would be fixated on Christ um, and that he alone would give us the hope that we need to get through our lives, uh, to get through this weekend and this week. Um, and yeah, Lord, we just give our lives in that way to you, Father. And so help us to understand your word. Help us to understand more of who you are uh, as the Son of God, our Lord. And so we're just grateful for this time. And we pray this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. So if you can <clears throat> actually follow along with me for just a moment here and walk down a philosophical path, if you will, uh, we won't go too far back. We won't reach too far back into the past. Um, but there was in the 1940s through the early 2000s uh, something called postmodernism. If you, if you raise your hand, have you heard of postmodernism? Yeah, what do you think about when you think of postmodernism? So, what? Art? Art? Oh, ah, I thought you said art, like in a Brooklyn accent. Ah, is that Brooklyn accent? 
Is that Boston? I don't know. Anyways, oh, Lord. If you're from New York, I'm so sorry. I'm from Michigan. <laughs> um, okay, ah, anything else? <laughs> architecture. Good. Okay, cool. Architecture, art. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty, like, pretty much like the frequent uh, things that we hear. Uh, when I think of postmodernism, uh, I think of the philosophical idea that truth is relative. You guys have maybe heard of that? Truth is relative. Um, and then after postmodernism, what we see uh, come around in the early 2000s to maybe even the present uh, is what we call the post-truth era. Um, post-truth is something that maybe some of us may not be as familiar with. Uh, the post-truth era, uh, much like postmodernism, the phrase was truth is relative. Uh, in post-truth, uh, the phrase or the idea is that feelings and preferences become elevated to the level of truth, where some, for some, it becomes truth itself. Our feelings and our preferences become truth itself. And that's where we see a lot of the ideologies nowadays <clears throat> rise up where it's, you know, a lot of validating of your feelings, a lot of validating of your, you know, of your experiences, which I believe that there is a lot of good in that. But that is also <clears throat> the other side of the coin to the post-truth era that we live in some within the Christian worldview, some within the church. And I've read this uh, quote before for us, I believe, uh, in a previous message, um, is that we live in a post-Christian society, at least here in America. Uh, and the good Dr. Tim Keller, um, who uh, he would define post-Christian as this. This is the quote that I've read before. Uh, it says, modern secular people would say that the thing we need to be saved from is the idea that we need to be saved. The thing we need redemption from is the idea that we need redemption. And the only sin is to tell people that they sin. That's, that's, he's giving the lay of the land and what we're living in right now. <clears throat> Which means the only way to be free is to actually liberate yourself from Christianity. Because in the Christian worldview, we say that, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Right? So he says, which means the only way to be free is to actually liberate yourself from Christianity, which means our modern secular culture is not just post-Christian. In some ways, it's actually very Christian because it has all of the Christian values, all of the Christian virtues, but it wants them without God. Which whom, in the Christian worldview, we would say is the define you know the one who defines what is intrinsically good and evil what is uh what is right and wrong what is left and right right and i've again read this quote for us before but i wanted to bring this up again because i think what dr tim keller is getting at is so important for us to understand in the world that we live in when it comes to the christian faith and society people have virtues people have values people have uh, ethical framework people have morals right uh, and in a society at least here in america in, uh, increasingly these virtues values morals and ideologies and theologies are becoming farther and farther away from christ from jesus for example phrases such as you don't need to be a Christian to be a good person has become a phrase that we hear a lot nowadays, right? You've probably heard that in your life. Oh, or maybe an iteration of that is, I have a non-Christian friend who's actually a lot nicer than a lot of my other Christian friends, right? You guys have heard something along those lines? It's pretty commonplace. And there are some 
when it comes to even Jesus and amongst Christians where we see this kind of seeping, beginning to seep in is where it comes to Jesus and the church, we would say, some would say uh, that I would want Jesus without the church, right? Or some want the church without Jesus. They just want community, right? A community of people that follow Christ, but they themselves maybe not want to follow Christ. Or you want to follow Jesus, and you're just not wanting to be part of the church. You can do church alone in your dorm room or in your home, right? Farther and farther is our society moving away from Christ. Uh, if you actually look at this image up here, uh, I took this picture at a Hobby Lobby. Just kidding. I found it from the internet <laughs> on Google. I just typed in, Jesus is the reason, and then this popped up, right? You've seen this before, yes? Yes? So when you see this, what feelings do you get? You get triggered? I get mad triggered when I see this. <laughs> or like, put Christ back in Christmas, right? I see that, I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, this <laughs> is eye-rolling. Um, it's corny, it's mad corny, and it's mad outdated, right? But there's truth to it. <laughs> Let me just say, as the one who is, like, really triggered by this when I see this, there is some truth to it, right? It hits on something that I think is quite significant for us to pay attention to if you're in this room identifying as a Christ follower, which is that the significant, uh, significance of Christ in this world and his authority in and over our lives is and should be the primary thing. And that's what I think is at the heart of this Hobby Lobby sign, right? Is that Christ is to be at the center and have the supreme authority over our lives. So who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And better yet, why should we care? Why should you in this room, you wake up on a cold Sunday morning, right? And you come to church because of a guy named Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. Why should we care about Jesus and whether or not we understand him to be the Son of God and Lord, as the Apostles' Creed affirms, right? Why? Because we know, a lot of us know the what and the who, sometimes the why escapes us. And I would argue that the why is the driving force and should be the driving force on why we do what we do as followers of Christ. Let me read for us one more time Luke 3, 21 through 22. It says, When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Anyone here watch the UFC? Nobody? Wow. Oh, man. Maybe, ooh, maybe I'm watching stuff that I shouldn't be watching. <laughs> Nobody here watches UFC? Or maybe, like, oh, who watches NBA? Basketball? There's no way there's only that few people. Well, okay, anyways, what I'm trying to get at is, there are announcers at these sports, right? Sports, it goes over my head. Anyways, and they announce the arrival of the team, the home team, right? 
right? Or, or whoever wins at the end of a UFC fight, right? Like, uh, I'm not going to try to imitate the guy that does the voice. He's really good. I can't do it. Much deeper than my voice. Um, but the point of pronouncing is to announce the, the, the welcoming of someone or something, in this case, like a team uh, or, a, or a UFC fighter, right? As someone who is great and amazing to announce the, the, to, the, to pronounce the presence and the welcome in the space, and this is, in a sense, perhaps a New Testament version of the heavens opening up, the Spirit descending on Jesus, very, very supernatural. And then you hear a voice that says what? A voice that we presume that is God the Father declaring that Jesus is his Son with whom he is well pleased. And what we see here upon, is upon, uh, upon Jesus' baptism, right, is that God declares Jesus to be his son, to be his only son. And it is here that through the presence of the Trinity, which is pretty wild that we actually see it, all three, uh, uh, all three persons of the Trinity are, are here, that Jesus' identity as the son of God is affirmed by God himself but the thing about this account is this. <clears throat> if the Apostle Luke, right, or if Luke just ended, ended the, the, the story here, it would kind of be weird, in my opinion. Because technically, Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, he was a physician. He was very uh, keen to detail. If he ended the story there, it would be kind of weird because technically, technically, if you're the author of a book, Right, the author of a narrative, you could just say, so-and-so, you know, was declared the beloved son of God, with whom God is well pleased. Right? It could have been anyone, right? And so what does the apostle, or what does the Dr. Luke do to kind of fortify this event, this supernatural and spiritual event? He validates it historically. We look at chapter, uh, continue reading in verse, uh, chapter 3. Right? I'm going to skip around here in this genealogy, but if you look at uh, verses 23 through 24, the, the, uh, Dr. Luke, he writes, <clears throat> As he, Jesus, began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Methat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, jump down to verse 30, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Melea, son of Mena, son of Metatha, son of Nathan, son of David, jump down to verse 38, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam. And he ends with what? Son of God. This is a historical genealogy of Jesus' family lineage. So not only in this book is there spiritual affirmation of who Jesus is as the Son of God, there is a historical affirmation as well. And when you look at the beginning of this letter, of the book of Luke, you see that it's addressed to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is a, a, a name that says friend of God. Um, and he, Dr. Luke is writing to Theophilus, right? Uh, I believe uh, most people thought that he's like a Roman, a Roman guy. But he was trying to help Theophilus who was wavering in his faith. He was struggling with believing in this man named Jesus to be a savior. And so what does Dr. Luke do early in his book? He validates that Jesus is in fact a savior. 
by proving and showing his lineage. <clears throat> there is actually something quite fulfilling about knowing your own family lineage. Does anyone here, like, other than like your great-great-grandma, maybe great-great-grandma, do you, do you know anyone beyond that? Nobody? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Who? Oh, for real? Dang, that's a gift. Take that for real. That's a gift, right? Because to know where you come from, to know the, your own family historical background is a gift. And uh, I remember one time I was having a conversation with my uncle. He's kind of like the brains of our family. He's a professor down at Xavier University, economics professor. He's really heady, right? But he knew and knows about my family's genealogy because uh, you see in, in Korea, there are many people with my last name. Uh, it's kind of like the Smith or the Johnson of America, right? Um, or any other, you know, I'm not going to say generic, but I have a generic last, Korean last name, right? So in, in English, right, in English, my last name is, is Y-I. Uh, other people spell it Lee, right? Or in Korean, it's E. I'm from the E clan, right? There's many of us. Um, it's kind of like a Park or a Kim, right? And <clears throat> as we're discussing our family's lineage, uh, even just knowing about my, my, grandpa's, uh, my grandpa's history before we immigrated to South, uh, from South Korea to America, learning about his life in Korea, and then even learning about my great-great-grandma's uh, uh, experience living in, in occupied Korea, right? It was occupied by the Japanese Empire. And according to my uncle, he did his own research, and he found that our family's uh, Yi clan can actually be traced. And this is like every Korean family says, oh, my, my family's part of the royal family. No, it's not. Not everyone's family's part of that. Stop lying. Um, but my family's... <laughs> but my family's lineage actually goes back to a councilman in the king's court. So not yet just the king, but, you know, we were advising the king, so it's pretty cool. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, a, it's a close second. I'll take it, right? But knowing one's genealogy is a powerful thing. And in this case, what we see with the lineage here about Jesus that makes his sonship so powerful is that it is a lineage that Jesus comes out of, a lineage of broken and imperfect people. A broken and imperfect people, God still makes due on his promise to bring out the Messiah out of the Davidic lineage. And we don't have time to get into all of the imperfect people, all the broken people that Jesus came out of, right, that came before Jesus. But for example, a guy like David, right, maybe some of you guys are familiar with King David, right. He murdered a guy named Uriah just so that he can get with his wife, as candid as I can make that. Like, that's messed up. And yet, Jesus comes out of King David's lineage. My guy, that's, his, that's the name of the, the Davidic lineage, right? Jesus comes out of a, a lineage of broken and imperfect people. The Savior of the world comes through that type of family background. It is through this lineage of imperfect people that the perfect Son of God is born, lived a sinless and perfect life to rip the claws of sin from humanity as he died on the cross, buried in the grave, and resurrected three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and death, and resurrected from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God. 
Jesus' identity as the Son of God is not just affirmed supernaturally and spiritually, but also historically as well. And it's so significant that we understand and see this. From the insertion of Jesus' genealogy, excuse me, we find that Dr. Luke, he actually brings um, his audience out of a spiritual and historical account from here uh, of Jesus' genealogy. And he actually brings Jesus into, uh, into uh, uh, an account, an interaction, an encounter between himself and someone known as the deceiver, the enemy, the Satan, or Satan, as many people know him to be. If you look at chapter 4, it is out of this place of Jesus being called the Son of God, with whom God is well pleased, that we see this. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. It's a bit of a lengthy passage. Try to imagine this interaction between the two. Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. And so he took him up, the enemy, Satan, took Jesus up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all of this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you, Jesus, then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Satan took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation... He departed him for a time. Let's unpack this. The word wilderness that's used here, the Greek. In the Greek, it is called heromos. It means desert, remote, solitary, a forsaken and desolate place. It has multiple meanings. Don't think of, I mean, maybe in some parts, like a lush greenery. But for the most part, it's a desert, right? Empty. There's no life there. This is where the encounter between Jesus and the Satan or Satan happens, right? And it's fascinating that this encounter happens in the wilderness where there's absolutely nothing around them. Nothing good going around them, right? And what we see here is that the enemy, the deceiver, right? The deceiver, he speaks lies or he tries to trick us or trick you or trick, in this case, Jesus. His main tactic is, is to what? Cast doubts on Jesus or tempt Jesus by saying what? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. X, Y, and Z. It's fascinating that this is what the counter, the account shares of this encounter because what we just read in Luke chapter 3 is what? This is my Beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. 
A voice that we presume to be God's saying that over Jesus. And then just one chapter later, just a handful of verses later, we see this interaction where Jesus and the enemy, the deceiver, uh, he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, X, Y, and Z. And what we can at the very least conclude is that the sonship of Christ is very significant. God says it, and the enemy is willing to put that to the test. There is major significance to the sonship of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered how other worldviews or world religions view Jesus? It's a very interesting thing to look at if you have the time over winter break. Um, I have a little chart here, I believe. Um, oh, I see. <clears throat> oh, I see. I see, how, I see how our creative team did it. Nice. Okay. So I'm going to just read through some of these real quick. Judaism, Mary's son, rabbi, miracle worker, claimed to be Messiah. And Islam, born of a virgin, right? To be revered, a prophet, a wise teacher, a miracle worker. Hinduism, holy man, wise teacher, what humans can attain. Uh, in Buddhism, there's enlightened, you know, he's an enlightened man, a wise teacher, a holy man. In the New Age, which is something that we should all be aware of, New Age is that he's just a moral teacher. He's good guy Jesus, you know. Um, Mormons, you know, believe the Father is greater than Jesus. He's the firstborn and really the only born of God. Uh, he's an elder brother to all of humanity. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not divine. God's only direct creation, son of God, not a part of the Trinity. And then historic Christianity, which is, if you're not following along, this is what most, like, most of you guys probably follow. Protestantism, historic Christianity, whatever, right? Born of a virgin, existed in all time with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Perfectly human and divine, son of God. The list goes on and on and on for all of these different world religions. Uh, I would encourage you, take a look if you can at these different world religions and how they view Jesus. A common thought in our society is this. A common thought in our society about religions is that all religions are very different on the surface, but at the core, they're all the same. Which is why the phrase, what? All paths lead to? All paths lead to God. That's a common phrase in our society today, right? All the religions on the surface, they're different, but at the core, they're all the same thing. Pick whichever one you want, and you can, you, you'll, it'll lead you to God, right? That's, that's what our current society believes in, right? As the good doctor Tim Keller said, I, it's not, you don't have to put it on the screen. Let me just read it for you at the very end. He says, which means our modern secular Christ, uh, culture is not just post-Christian. In some ways, it's actually very Christian because it has all the Christian values, but it wants them without God. All religions are different. At the core, they're the same. But the inverse is actually true. The inverse is true. All religions on the surface are actually the same. But at the core, they are very different. They're different in their values. They're different in their beliefs and their doctrines. Go talk to a fellow Muslim friend of yours, if you have one, practicing Muslim. And you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with each belief, and you'll find differences at the core. If you take a look at the table... You'll see that when it comes to Jesus, there is a similarity across the board on who he is for the most part. Wise, teacher, you know, rabbi. Um, I think it's safe to say good guy Jesus. He's a good guy. Yeah, I think that's fine. You know, 
prophet. There's so many things on this table when you look at it. It's pretty similar. But dig deeper and you will find that the historic Christian view of Christ is very different at the end of the day. That the historic Christian view of Christ is different at the end of the day. He is much more than just a moral teacher. He is much more than just good guy Jesus. Jesus. Well, my Korean came out of Jesus. Um, He is more than just this prophet. But he is also the son of God and Lord over all. Why does it matter whether or not we believe that Jesus is the son of God? And how we even view that and understand that. If Jesus is not the son of God, I would argue that the whole Christian worldview falls apart. If Jesus is not the son of God and Lord over all, then the whole Christian worldview falls apart. He then becomes uh, dwindled down into a mere teacher, good guy Jesus, a prophet or whatever, right? a miracle worker, but Jesus is the Messiah that the the Old Testament scriptures, the ancient Jewish scriptures spoke of. This is why it is so critical. Because if not, then who were the Old Testament scriptures talking about? It is important that Jesus is the Son of God because belief in Jesus as the Son of God actually is an identity issue for us. It becomes an identity issue for us because of what Satan says. If you are the son of God, meaning it's a two-pronged attack. If you are the son of God, here's the first prong, prove that you are the son of God and fall into my temptation, meaning succumb to my deception. And if Jesus did, then he's not the Messiah. And the other prong to this attack is Or if you don't do these things, then you must actually not be the son of God. Right? But Jesus, we know, is the son of God with whom God is well pleased. And he perfected overcoming temptation from the deceiver. He redeemed what happened in the Garden of Eden. Where Adam and Eve fell into the temptation of the enemy. And in this case, from Adam's lineage, Jesus, the Son of God, does not fall into that temptation. It is this Jesus, the Son of God, with whom God is well pleased, that went to the cross to die for our sins, so that we who were once not well pleased by God can become well pleased by God. Because you see, my friends, when you place your faith in Christ, when you place your hope and when you place your allegiance, when you give your life to Christ, the lordship and the sonship of Christ, when God says, with you who I'm well pleased, Christ puts that on us. And he takes the very thing, the very sin that makes us not well pleased before a holy and righteous God. Upon this interaction, we'll wrap up with this. There are three temptations that Satan attempts to lure Jesus into. Turn stone into bread, worship Satan to receive all the splendor and all the majesty and all the glory of the world, to throw himself off the peak of the temple in Jerusalem, to call up the angels and, you know, call your boys, you know, tell them to help you out. All of this to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. It was 
this weird external validation, Satan was baiting Jesus to prove something that he already knew about himself. Jesus already knew that he was the son of God. And Satan was just baiting him to prove that. The fascinating thing we see here with Jesus' response is that he leans into the fullness of the Spirit living in him and also the Scriptures. Those two were the bedrock to his identity. Not only as the Son of God, but look at what he says at the end. Or he says in the middle too. But at the end he says, Do not test the Lord your God. I think this is one of the, uh, if I can be uh, somewhat blunt, this is one of the most BA responses I've ever read in scripture. Do not test the Lord your God. Like try pulling that out in a conversation now. People are like, yo, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? This is weird. But Jesus can say that because he is the Lord God over all of creation. And in this world, he takes the dial, cranks it up to 11, and not only claims to be the son of God, but claims to be the Lord God. In the midst of the wilderness, the desolate place, the forsaken place, Jesus even can claim to be the Lord God, yes, over Satan, yes, over the wilderness, yes, in the midst of the wilderness. And he claims, and he can claim, and he did claim to be the Lord God. In the wilderness is where we see the strength and might of Jesus. In the void, in the desolate, we see Jesus leaning into his sonship, and his lordship over all. And we have access to him through faith. You don't have to work to, to have access to Jesus. You just have to believe in Christ, the son of God, the Lord over all. And this is why his sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. To save the world and for those who would believe have you ever went shopping at Forever 21? This verse, boom, right on the bottom of the bag. I'm going to pull it out right now. John 3, 16. There you go. Boom, right there. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in what? The name of the one and only son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And out of God's love for the world, out of his love for you, which seems so abstract, seems so far-fetched, seems so distant of an idea, but we can understand it if we believe by faith, place our hope in the Son of God, the one whom God was well-pleased with and is well-pleased with. That if you believe through faith what Christ did on the cross, that he conquered sin, Satan, and death and was resurrected from the grave three days later and ascended to the right hand of God, God sees you and he is pleased with you because he sees Christ and his righteousness over you. What we're going to do actually to wrap this up um, is 
we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. You see the little you know, communion to go cups um, on, your, on your table. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to lead us uh, in taking this communion. Um, so would you pray with me, and then we're going to take communion together, all right? Jesus, you are Lord over all. That is our prayer. Pray that as my friends here, whom I either just met today for the first time or have known for quite a while, as we go throughout the rest of the day and the week, especially for those who have finals, may we know that you are Lord over all. That no matter how well or how bad we may do on finals or in our classes or whatever, that you are still pleased with us. That maybe some people in our lives may not be pleased with us, but Lord, may we rest in the reality that you are pleased with us because of Christ and all that he has done for us on the cross. We just pray that we would lean into that, Lord. We're grateful, Father, for, um, for who you are and sending your son to die on the cross for us. May we not take that for granted, Lord, and may we understand the true implications of that, what that means in our lives. So be with us, Lord, in this way. Um, yeah, we just lift this up, Lord, in Jesus' name, Jesus, who is your only son um, and who is Lord over our lives. Pray this, Lord, in his name. Amen. So if you guys want to actually um, just take a look at your communion to go thingy, um, I just want to encourage you guys that before the mess of finals week, it's like the calm before the storm, right? Um, and obviously the rest that comes with, you know, the, the winter break. Um, I want us to, be re to remember Christ as we take communion together. That this is not just some, you know, sacrament that we, you know, the church just does to just do it. But it speaks of, uh, I, I, believe, I believe it to be more of like a manifesto of sorts to a, a, a world that says, you do you. You live your own life. But for us in this room, if you believe in Christ, it says something very different. It says that you belong to a family. It says that you are part of a family that submits their entire lives to the lordship of Christ and his authority over your life. And you recognize what he did on the cross in his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. And so that's what, you're, that's what this is. It's important. Paul says in the, in the New Testament, do this, or I'm sorry, Jesus says, um, do this in remembrance of me. And so as you take this, take the drink, please drink the drink first, I think. No, eat the cracker first and then drink the drink. Yes, it's kind of, you know, two-sided that way. Um, remember that. Remember Christ. Remember that you are part of this family and that you can lean into Christ and people in this family as well. Thanks.